This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. There are many today who assert that there is an inherent conflict between the Christian faith and science. But when we go back into history in detail, it's amazing to consider just how many scientists were Christians and saw their innovations in light of their belief in the Creator. Well, we're going to explore the lives of some of these important people today with William Federer. He's a historian, nationally known speaker and host of the daily radio feature American Minute and the TV program Faith and History. He is also the author of more than 20 books. His latest is called Miraculous Milestones in Science, Medicine, and Innovation and the Faith of Those Who Achieved Them. Bill, so good to have you with us again. How are you? Oh, Janet, great to be with you. Great to have you here. Why take a look at some of these great innovators in history and, and highlight what they believed? What is this based on this whole contention that you can't be a Christian and actually believe in science at the same time? Right. The cancel culture makes it so that those that are students or teachers who acknowledge that they believe in a creator, they could risk their grades or risk their job. Yes. <laughs> and so what this is, is uh, some uh, defense to show that the pioneers of science, we're talking astronomy and Copernicus, Galileo, and uh, Tycho Brahe and Kepler, Newton, uh, that they were believers in a creator. Many of them were strong Christians. And yes. so this just is a little bit of a, a pushback. Well, I love that. And there's so many people to talk about here. I know we can't possibly go through all of them in the time that we have. But one of the main people that you talk about right at the outset is Copernicus. And that was the beginning of the scientific revolution when he published on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres. Can you talk a little bit about the significance of that work and what part his faith played in discovering the planets revolve around the sun and that whole issue that we all remember from school? Right. So the Ptolemy said the Earth was the center, but Copernicus is the one that said, no, the sun is at the center. It rocked the academic world. He had his doctorate in canon church law, Hmm. and he said the universe is wrought for us by a supremely good and orderly creator. Uh, A contemporary of his is Galileo, the first one to use a telescope. And Galileo said the laws of nature are written by the hand of God in the language of mathematics. Hmm. And then Tycho Brahe, he compiled astronomical observations, and he said, those who study the stars have God for a teacher. Uh, Tycho Brahe's student was Johannes Kepler, and he uh, is the one who discovered laws of planetary motion. He took all these catalogs of the stars and planets and realized, wow, uh, there's these eight planets, and they he wrote a book called Harmonies of the World, comparing the eight notes in music with the eight planets. And um, he says, I had the intention of becoming a theologian, but now I see how God is, by my endeavors, also glorified in astronomy, hmm. for the heavens declare the glory of God. Right. And then, of course, there's Isaac Newton. And if you want, I can share a little on him. Yes, love Newton. Go ahead. So Isaac Newton's the first astronomer to use a uh, reflecting telescope. He's considered the father of modern science and physics. He discovers laws of motion, laws of energy conservation, gravity, calculus, optics. Um, He wrote more on Bible prophecies and the book of Daniel than on science. Oh, wow. Sir Isaac Newton. 
he says the most beautiful system of sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from an intelligent being whom I call the Lord God. <laughs> and um, uh, then there's Francis Bacon, who was also one of the scientists. His, quote, knowledge is power is engraved in the Library of Congress. But Francis Bacon said, a little philosophy inc- inclineth men's minds to atheism. But wow. depth in philosophy brings men's minds to religion. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? That's interesting. What are your thoughts on that particular observation of Bacon's a little philosophy inclines men's minds to atheism? Have you, would you agree with that when you look at some of these people in history? Yeah, so you have the, the woke generation, and it's like, oh, there's something bigger than me. And, but they, if they study further, they realize, yeah, that, that bigger thing is the plan of God. And, and so Francis Bacon, along with many of the others, saw that there were two books uh, revealed religion in the scriptures and the laws uh, revealed by God in nature. So as Francis Bacon wrote, there are two books laid before us to study. The first, the volume of scriptures, uh, then the volume of the creatures, which expresses God's power. Hmm. Um, and, f- and then we can't leave out Robert Boyle. He's the father of chemistry. Robert Boyle term, uh, coined the terms element, litmus test, chemical analysis. analysis. He's known for Boyle's law which is um, uh, where you double the pressure, uh, or, or you, you cut the volume in half, you double the pressure, right? So yeah. it's very important for scuba divers, because if you hold your breath while you're coming up, it'll burst your lungs. And Anyway, Boyle was a trustee of the British East India Company, and he wanted to evangelize, and so he supported missionaries. He actually started an Indian school at the College of William and Mary, and he endowed the Boyle Lectures, which went on for centuries. This is where he set aside 50 pounds for the annual salary of a learned divine or preaching minister to pr- prove the Christian religion against notorious infidels, atheists, theists, and pagans and Mohammedan, encouraging the propagating of the Christian religion. So here, the father of chemistry was wanted to propagate the Christian religion. Wow, that's something else. It's kind of funny because as you're going through all the lives of these great men, I'm thinking, how would they fare in today's academic institutions? I mean, to be open and honest about your Christian faith, it really probably wouldn't matter that they were such geniuses in so many ways and and made the discoveries that they did if they held to the wrong Christian worldview. How do you think some of these men would fare in our own day if they tried to do some of what they did back then in our own day? Right. Uh, Cancel culture would erase them immediately. Uh, But here they viewed science as understanding God's creation and getting an insight into God himself. Yes. Blaise Pascal, he's the one that invented the barometer. He's the father of hydraulic engineering. Blaise Pascal is famous for his Pascal's wager, which is, how can anyone who lose who chooses to become a Christian? If when he dies, there turns out to be no God, he has been happier in this life than his non-believing friends. If, however, there is a God and a heaven and a hell, he has gained heaven and his skeptical friends have lost everything in hell. So it's like, you don't have anything to lose. Uh, I even throw in a black astronomer. His name is Benjamin Benneker. He grew up in Maryland. He was a Quaker, a Christian. And he self-taught himself astronomy and also by visiting with astronomers. And he put together a popular almanac which is these ephemeris tables of the planets and their movements, and so you can predict the, the tides, uh, the full moon, and you can also uh, know when the seasons will change. So if you're a farmer, you want to know when you should start planting your crops. And, and so Benjamin Benneker's almanac was a bestseller. Hmm. He was a black astronomer. That's neat. Um, and then there's Einstein. Uh, he goes out to the Hubble uh, 
Edwin Edwin Hubble is an astronomer in uh, Mount Pleasant Observatory in California, and uh, he's the one who discovered the red shift, which means that uh, light travels in waves, and uh, the red is a slow wave, and so if the galaxy is moving further away from you, then you would see the red a little bit stronger. And uh, Albert Einstein thought that the universe was static, that it was just there. Right. And there wasn't, but once he looked through Edwin Hubble's telescope at Mount Pleasant and he saw the red shift, he said, Zosa must have been a beginning. <laughs> and Einstein said, I observe the laws of nature. There are not laws without a lawgiver. Isn't that Even interesting? Isaac Newton was a little bit uh, unorthodox in, in some of his beliefs. He still believed that there was a, a creator. Yeah. And I love Vernon von Braun. Uh, he's the father of modern space flight. He worked over in Germany during World War II, developed the V-2 rocket. When the war was ending, uh, the Nazis uh, were being taken over by either Russians on one side or an America on the other. So it was Oper- Operation Paperclip, uh, where he and his uh, scientists decided they wanted to defect to America because we believed the Bible, and they knew what they had invented was very powerful. Anyway, he comes to America, and he develops the space program, even the, the Saturn V rocket. I spoke once at NASA and uh, with uh, General Bob Stewart, the highest-ranking Army officer to fly into space shuttle. And, but we're underneath of the Saturn V rocket. This thing is a football field long, and he's pointing all the different parts of it out to me. And, but um, uh, Vernon von Braun uh, gave a great quote. He said, when astronaut Frank Borman was told that a Soviet cosmonaut said he had seen neither God nor angels on his flight. Foreman replied, no, I did not see him either, but I saw his evidence. Oh, my goodness. Well, we're going to take a short break. William Federer with us. Miraculous Milestones in Science, Medicine, and Innovation is his book, and we'll come back on Janet Meffer today. Stay with us. Fellow Christians are suffering in Africa. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Pastor Lumo ministers in Mozambique near the Indian Ocean. He's been beaten and jailed many times, not merely for what he believes, but for how he lives out his faith. You see, Lumo has been quietly and faithfully sharing the gospel with Muslims, and many are coming to Christ. But extremists have assaulted Lumo, his family, and many in his church. But they're not asking for an end to the persecution they face. Instead, they're praying for God's word to endure and persevere as new followers of Jesus Christ. That's exactly why we're partnering with Bible League International to send Bibles to 1,500 new believers in Africa. $5 sends a Bible, $50 sends 10, and every gift given will be doubled. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's an Open the Floodgates banner at JanetMefford.com. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, and God bless you for caring. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new health care program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through May 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the health care program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a health care sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start 
start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us and great to have with us Bill Federer, historian and nationally known speaker. His book is called Miraculous Milestones in Science, Medicine and Innovation and the Faith of Those Who Achieve Them Over and Against the Cancel Culture of Our Own Day. In fact, when you go back in history and you look at the lives of a lot of these men, they had a very strong belief in the Lord and many of them were Christians. And this is encouraging because it goes back to this important principle that to understand science is to understand God's creation. Bill, you were talking before we went to the break about Vernon von Braun and and so many other people who invented such important things along the way, great innovators. You also talk, though, about the history of writing in ancient Israel. You mentioned Gutenberg and his printing press. Uh, How does that innovation uh, come into alignment with a belief in God and faith in the Lord? Right, so around 3300 B.C. is when Sumeria develops cuneiform, and they have 1,500 characters, but it's only for the kings to keep track of everything the king owns. It's not for the common people. Egypt had 3,000 hieroglyphs, but again, only for the kings and scribes. It was the scribes' secret knowledge. They kept the hieroglyphs complicated on purpose as job security, (laughs) and only 1% of Egypt could read, and China had 10,000 characters, and it was, again, just for court records. When Moses came down the mountain, he did not just have the law. He had the law in a 22-character alphabet. First letter's Aleph, second letter Beth, sound familiar? He didn't come down the mountain with the, with the law in 3,000 hieroglyphs, right? It was so easy to learn, kids could learn it. And lo and behold, this allows Israel to become the first literate nation on planet Earth where everyone could read and write. So not only did they have the law, they could read the law for themselves. And, and then we fast forward to the printing. Now, they printed on, uh, they wrote on papyrus, but when the Muslims conquered Egypt, they held back the ships filled full of papyrus, so Europe had a paper shortage. And this was the beginning of the Dark Ages, so they wrote on things like animal skins and parchments and so forth. Uh, China. China developed paper from tree pulp around the 8th century, but it was just over there in China. Uh, They also did the first printing. It was rudimentary. It was stone rubbing. So they'd carve in a stone, they'd put ink on it, and they'd put a piece of paper and rub on it. And um, uh, But China printed currency under Kublai Khan, you know, and, and Kublai Khan printed too much of it, and it caused their empire to bank, be bankrupt. But with, with 30,000 characters, you couldn't have a printing press very easily. And so China sort of capped out. But then Korea, 1234, they developed a printing press with a simple 26-letter alphabet to teach the Chinese characters. And this developed, but Korea was a hermit island, a hermit kingdom. So, you know, Portuguese ships would get shipwrecked on on Korea. They wouldn't let them out. So, So their knowledge of this printing press probably did not spread. But in 1454, Gutenberg invented the printing press. And what was the first thing that he printed? The, the Bible. Bible. Right. And the Bible went on to become the world's best-selling book. 
Um, Gutenberg said, a religious truth is imprisoned in a small number of manuscript books, which have uh, can then confined. At, and then he says, let us break the seal. And then he says, uh, no longer written at great expense by hands, easily palsied, but multiplied like the wind of an untiring machine. Oh, wow. And so this basically, instead of uh, a king or a, you know church leaders rounding up, uh, things and burning them, now you could multiply knowledge, and this laid the foundation for things like the Reformation. And of course, that was a, a very providential moment in history where you had the printing press just at the moment where Luther had translated the Greek New Testament into German, and it was already there. And uh, yeah, it's amazing how that all comes together. Uh, you know, another person you write about that I'm very interested in is Benjamin Franklin, and you describe him as printer, inventor, and abolitionist. But when you're looking at Benjamin Benjamin Franklin and some of his innovations and his belief in God, what do you discover? Right. So he invented the lightning rod, bifocal glasses, the rocking chair, swim flippers. Uh, But during the threatened war with France in 1747, he drafts a day of fasting and prayer, Mm -hmm. has it printed, and the Pennsylvania legislature adopts it. And then he prints all the sermons of George Whitfield and spreads them up and down the colonies. And he prints the sermons of lots of pastors. And uh, this is sort of a side of Ben Franklin that people don't uh, understand. He becomes the first president of the first anti-slavery society, and he founds the first hospital in America. And one of the things I do in the book is I give the history of hospitals. Yes. Right. So nowadays they're wanting to push people of faith uh to give up their freedom of conscience and do transgendered surgeries or abort babies, even if they don't want to. And well, lo and behold, hospitals were started by Christians. Yes. Uh, it wasn't Egypt or China or Greece that had health care for the poor. It was Jesus who said, I was sick when you visited me. Fourth century AD in Syria, they have the first medical school in Nisibis. And then around Iraq, these Christian families uh, called the Bukshiu family, nine generations. They have a medical academy at Gundushapur. But then the consul in Nicaea, this is interesting, uh, they require every church where people are making a pilgrimage to, to have an infirmary. Hmm. So you're traveling across Europe, going to the Holy Land, long trip, you wind up worn out, you convalesce. And so the word for traveler in Latin is hosp, H-O-S-P. Oh, and so they would call it a hospital. Oh, wow. That's where you also get the word hospitality. Yeah. And then you have in 541 AD, a plague of Justinian in, in Constantinople. Millions die. And St. Samson, the hospitable, he takes the sick people into his home and Justinian gives him lots of money. And he starts a hospital that goes on for 600 years. When Islam comes along, they need a security system. And so you have the Knights Hospitaller that defend these hospitals. Then the Benedictines, 529 AD. They establish monasteries with infirmaries, and they start the oldest medical school in Western Europe in Salerno, Italy. The Benedictine Christians. And then the, in uh, Paris, the Hotel Diu. Hotels were also from the word hosp or traveler. Diu is God. And so it's staffed by nuns. And these nuns dedicate their lives to take care of the sick because they're doing it as unto Jesus. They start them all across Europe. 1633 is run by the Sisters of Charity. And the French Revolution chops off their heads. And there's stories of these nuns 
whole whole convents of them being marched up to the guillotine, singing their church song, and one by one there'd be one less voice. Why? Because they wouldn't embrace the new secular French Republic. Sort of like today, these little sisters, yes. you know, being sued yes. because they wouldn't embrace Obamacare and yeah. and, and pay for abortions, and they've had to fight it all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, then the bubonic plague, 1331, comes from China. Gee, a virus from China. How do Seems like that? familiar. Along with, <laughs> yeah. with uh, fleas along caravans and then rats on ships comes to Constantinople, 1347, and millions die. An estimated 75 to 200 million people die across Europe. Crops are left standing in the field. No one's there to bury the dead. And so instead of running away from the plague, you have Christians running to it, the election brothers from a uh, St. Alexis who gave away his money to take care of the poor. And, and these election brothers would collect the dead and bodies and give them a Christian burial. And if they weren't dead yet, they gave them a little hospice care and pointed them to the Lord, and then that turned into hospitals. And then St. Vincent de Paul, he had been captured by a, and made a slave uh, by Muslims in Constantinople. And then he witnesses to his master who converts, and then he and his master escape and come back to Europe. And in 1607, he starts a hospital in Europe, and it's funded by a, a wealthy queen there in France. The Plague of London, 1666, a quarter of London dies. And this is when Sir Isaac Newton leaves London, goes to a country estate, and sees an apple fall from a tree <laughs> and begins theorizing on the laws of gravity. And... Um, but then in America, as I mentioned, Ben Franklin started the first hospital. But the revolution, uh, more people died of smallpox than died in battle. Mm. And so you had Benjamin Rush pushing vaccinations against smallpox. And then you have things like hand washing. Uh, so they didn't know there were germs. And so uh, in, in Austria, Hungary, there was a doctor, Ignaz Semmelweis, and he said, hey, let's wash our hands. He got ridiculed and died in a insane asylum. But in America, you have Dr. Oliver Wendell Holmes, right. dean of Harvard Medical School, coined the word anesthesia. Right. Holmes is the one who pushed washing hands in America to stop what? Puperal fever, which is postpartum infections. Lo and behold, um, women would die for some unknown reason, and they would do the autopsies in the morning and then deliver babies in the afternoon without washing their hands. Ew. The doctors sort of showed how hard they worked by how much blood was on their apron, right? Uh. And so he, he said, I beg um, to be heard on behalf of the women whose lives are at stake. So here, lo and behold, he pushes, wash your hands before you touch a dead body who died of a disease and you deliver a brand new baby. That's why you'd see all these, you know, tombstones. She died in childbirth. And it's like, why? But finally, um, Louis Pasteur, France, and he has three of his five kids die. Uh, and he becomes uh, a microbiologist. He discovers germ theory and pasteurization. And he said, science, which brings men nearer to God. A contemporary of Pasteur is Dr. Joseph Lister. He's a Quaker, an Episcopal, and he develops antiseptic surgery. And we all know Dr. Lister because we've all gargled with Listerine sure. and antiseptic mouthwash. So Joseph yeah. Lister said, um, uh, he told his graduating class, it is our proud office to tend to the fleshly tabernacles of the immortal spirit. And then he says, I am a believer in the fundamental doctrines of Christianity. Mm. 
That is uh, astounding. So I go through all these different stories. I don't know if we're running out of time, but I get through the history of the calendar and things like that. Yes. Yeah, I know. I wish we had much more time because there's so many great stories throughout the book, Bill, and so many instances where you can just look back on these great men of history and say their belief in the Lord shone through. And and how ridiculous is it that people in our own day think that in order to be good in science, you should reject belief in God? This absolutely blows that argument apart. It's called Miraculous Milestones in Science, Medicine and Innovation and the Faith of Those Who Achieve Them by William Federer. Bill, it was so great to talk to you again. Thank you very, very much for being here. Well, Janet, it's always an honor. Thank you. For me, too. Thanks for being with us. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Beth Moore is no longer a Southern Baptist. She made this announcement in a new interview at Religion News Service. I thought it was kind of interesting when I read through this entire story. It's amazing who they go to for comment. Bob Smetana is the writer of this particular piece. And there are no conservatives who are actually quoted, who are notable within the Southern Baptist Convention, who might have something to say along the lines of, She hasn't been a Southern Baptist for quite a while, and this is probably a good move for her to finally formally leave the Southern Baptist Convention. No, it's Beth Moore is the greatest. She's an angelic being, and I'm making that up. Actually, Jonathan Merritt once said that. Jonathan Merritt, whose father used to be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and he's, uh, he's out there writing, doing a lot of writing in the Atlantic and so forth, but he had a tweet once where he referred to her as an angelic being. Uh, getting into a little bit of man worship. But anyway, here are the details. For nearly three decades, he says, Beth Moore has been the very model of a modern Southern Baptist. She loves Jesus and the Bible and has dedicated her life to teaching others why they need both of them in their lives. Millions of evangelical Christian women have read her Bible studies and flocked to hear her speak at stadium-style events where Moore delves deeply into biblical passages. All right, well, that's one way to interpret it. She also says some very bizarre things when she is, quote-unquote, delving deeply into biblical passages, like talking about God telling her to go brush some man's hair in an airport and don't witness to him. You can look that one up on YouTube if you want to. Moore's outsized influence and role in teaching the Bible have always made some evangelical power brokers uneasy because of their belief only men should be allowed to preach. But Moore was above reproach Okay, supporting Southern Baptist teaching that limits the office of pastor to men alone and cheerleading for the missions and evangelistic work that the denomination holds dear. They have wonderful quote from Tom Rayner, the former head of Lifeway from six years ago. And then Donald Trump came along. This is an interesting narrative because there's so much left out. Then along came Donald Trump and Beth Moore's criticism of the 45th president's abusive behavior toward women and her advocacy for sexual abuse victims turned her from a beloved icon to a pariah in the denomination she loved all her life. Uh, I don't really think that's the whole story, having watched this in real time. 
wake up sleepers to what women have dealt with all along in environments of gross entitlement and power. Moore once wrote about Trump riffing on a passage from the New Testament book of Ephesians. Because of her opposition to Trump and her outspokenness and confronting sexism and nationalism in the evangelical world, Moore has been labeled as quote unquote liberal and quote unquote woke and even as being a heretic for daring to give a message during a Sunday morning church service. Finally, Moore had had enough. She told Religion News Service in an interview that she is no longer a Southern Baptist. In the interview, she said, quote, I am still a Baptist, but I can no longer identify with Southern Baptists. I love so many Southern Baptist people, so many Southern Baptist churches, but I don't identify with some of the things in our heritage that haven't remained in the past. Like what? No, he didn't get into it. Moore told RNS that she recently ended her longtime publishing partnership with Nashville-based Lifeway Christian. And while Lifeway will still distribute her books, it will no longer publish them or administer her live events. Very interesting. And then he goes for the obligatory comment on Beth Moore's exit from the Southern Baptist Convention to a historian at Duke Divinity School. Because why wouldn't you go to Duke Divinity School to weigh in on the exit of Beth Moore from the Southern Baptist Convention, who's allegedly a liberal? And, and OK, this tells you everything you need to know. The people who are quoted in here reacting to Beth Moore as pseudo angelic being and she's so awesome and she's so great and she's such a victim. They're liberals. Why aren't you interviewing top people at the Southern Baptist Convention, Bob Smitana? I, I don't really quite understand your choice of interviewees. Not not at all. And and it's just kind of a puff piece, uh, you might say. I mean, there are some references here to some of the people who have objected to Beth Moore. And when she put out this exchange with another woman on Twitter, you might remember this if you're on Twitter. If not, what happened was in May of 2019, uh, Beth Moore said she did something she now describes as really dumb. A friend and fellow writer named Vicki Courtney mentioned on Twitter that she would be preaching in church on Mother's Day. And Beth Moore tweeted in reply, I'm doing Mother's Day too. Vicki, let's please don't tell anyone this. Yeah, she's not liberal. The tweet immediately sparked a national debate among Southern Baptists and other evangelical leaders over whether women should be allowed to preach in church. Actually, that's not what happened either. What actually happened was people said, hey, wait a minute. We thought she was this conservative Southern Baptist, and apparently she's been appearing in churches and preaching from the pulpit, and that's a violation of Southern Baptist doctrine and beliefs. The things that we confess as Southern Baptists, that's a violation of it. And I didn't see Beth Moore really interacting deeply on the subject. She doesn't really interact when people can, you know, criticize her very much on some of the things that she says and does. She just kind of disappears and lays low and says, Jesus loves us all and things like that. She hasn't really answered a lot of conservatives' questions. In fact, I go back to something that happened a few years ago. I think it was in 2019. And there were a group of women who were trying to get Beth Moore to clarify her position on homosexuality. This involved a Bible teacher by the name of Michelle Leslie and some other uh, people, women bloggers and Bible teachers. They published an open letter to Beth Moore, and it was subsequently signed by more than 500 additional Christian women. As Michelle says, the letter was merely a request for clarification of Beth's views on homosexuality since she maintains public, adulatory friendships with well-known homosexual 
sexuality affirming evangelicals such as Jen Hatmaker and Jonathan Merritt. And since she has been virtually silent on the issue of homosexuality in recent years. Yeah, not only that, but she had a book in which she had discussed the issue of homosexuality and the book was updated and a bunch of stuff was taken out. So they were trying to get clarification from Beth Moore. Hey, you're hanging around all these pro LGBT people and hailing them. Has your position on homosexuality changed? And so far as I know, Beth Moore just blew them off. I don't think she ever answered it. There's also the ongoing problem of some of the associations that Beth Moore has had with prosperity gospel preachers and people like Joyce Meyer and having a show on TBN. A lot of Christians have had a problem with that. Um, The women in the church thing is a problem. She's appeared at Joel Osteen's church. She's been hanging around with Christine Kane, who is, you know, originally hails from the leadership team of the Prosperity Gospel Church Hillsong. So a lot of problems there. Now, here's something else. One of the biggest criticisms that conservatives have made about Beth Moore is some of the wacky things that she says. And you can see some of these, as I said before, on YouTube, if you want to watch them for yourself. Here's here's one of the things. There was the hairbrush incident. There's some other, uh, you know, view. You can view things out there that she said in some of her many talks over the years. And she's just kind of out there. Uh, just kind of out there uh, in many instances saying very strange things. This is something Michelle Leslie has highlighted. Um, The hairbrush incident was one. There were some others as well. There was one in which she talked about the sacrifice of same-sex attracted Christians. They are sacrificing for God by not going forward with their urges. And people are like, what? What do you sacrifice? That's just to be obedient. But here's one of the excerpts that Michelle published from her book, The Beloved Disciple. Listen to this. Beloved, I'm convinced, this is Beth Moore talking, Beloved, I am convinced one of our severest needs is pure rest, not only sleep, but refreshment and recreation. Recently, God spoke to me about capturing what he and I are calling Sabbath moments. What? Like many of yours, my schedule right now is particularly tough and I see no time in the near future for a number of days off. God spoke to my heart one Saturday morning while I was preparing for Sunday school. Quote, my child in between more intense rests, I want to teach you to take Sabbath moments. As Michelle rightly points out, there's nothing in the Bible about Sabbath moments. God doesn't speak to us directly. We have his word and that's the word of God. And this whole propensity for God spoke to me and told me to go brush a guy's hair, but don't witness to him. Does that even sound like the voice of our shepherd? Go back to John chapter 10, where Jesus talks about the fact that his sheep hear his voice and they know him in a stranger's voice they won't follow. When something comes along that you say, that doesn't even sound biblical. And then you go to the Bible and you realize it's not biblical. Then you begin to say, this is a problem. And for many people in the Southern Baptist Convention, it's a good parting of the ways because they said she was having a liberalizing influence on the Southern Baptist Convention. And hey, maybe Russell Moore could follow suit and he, sh- he could leave the Southern Baptist Convention too. They could start their own woke denomination. And that's another thing too. Her propensity for wokeness and the whole white supremacy thing. She's big on that too. So a lot of Southern Baptists are happy that she has left the denomination because she was not a good fit. We'll see how she turns out if she gets more liberal now that she's gone. We'll keep you posted. There's more to come. Stay with us.
Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Women in crisis pregnancies today are often under tremendous pressure to abort. But he was like, you're not ready for another baby. And at that moment, I felt that I'm not going to be able to be a mom to this baby. So I came to the pregnancy clinic. She said they got a heartbeat. That changed my life just from that ultrasound picture. These are the voices that a young mom in crisis hears. She wants to make the right choice, but society and those around her are telling her that a preborn baby is not a life. This is where the Ministry of Preborn steps in. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country, shining a light into a mother's womb and introducing her to the beautiful life growing inside her. I'm going to keep my baby and I'm going to be a great mom. Join Preborn in helping young moms in crisis. For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229. That's 855-402-BABY. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a healthcare program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through May 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new healthcare program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that offers affordable healthcare sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.com org slash jmt today for more information call 855-585-4237 855-585-4237 or libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt you're listening to janet mefford today and now here's janet all right let's talk about somebody else who is kicking christians i don't know what is up with david french i really don't know what's up with him but he cannot resist the urge to turn around and smack down conservative Christians at seemingly every turn, just like his friend Russell Moore, who I was just talking about. Russell Moore did this piece in the Washington Post not too long ago. Not the mark of the beast. Evangelicals should fight conspiracy theories and welcome the vaccines. And I thought to myself, you're head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission at the Southern Baptist Convention, a job that you don't do particularly well. And when did you turn into the evangelical version of Dr. Fauci? Who are these guys who think that they're just now medical experts and they're anointed by God to come out to conservative Christians and guilt them into getting the COVID-19 vaccine? Well, David French did. He did. Here's the headline in his piece. The spiritual problem at the heart of Christian vaccine refusal. <laughs> there's there's a spiritual problem. Do you understand now? There's a spiritual problem. If you don't want to get the COVID-19 vaccine for any number of reasons, which would be, let's see, we can go through some of these reasons. Maybe one of the reasons is you've already had COVID-19. So you don't feel the need to rush out and get a vaccine. Another reason might be you are young and healthy and you're looking at the statistics on hospitalizations and death for people in your age range, your demographic, your particular health situation. And you're not particularly worried about getting COVID-19. So you're willing to take the risk. Maybe another reason would be, 
Well, we want to make sure that the vaccine is first distributed to people who really are at higher risk, such as elderly people or people with those underlying health conditions that make them need to go to the front of the line. So I'm waiting. Or there might be a reason that is pertaining to, I'm not particularly a great fan of new vaccines. I'd like to sit around for a little while and see how this one goes, whether it's the Pfizer one or the Moderna one or the new one from, what is it, Johnson & Johnson? That's the abortion cell line thing. There are lots of reasons you can refuse a vaccine that have absolutely nothing to do with any spiritual problems. So I don't know where he's coming from here other than he seems to wake up every morning and decide, how can I kick Christians today, even though he claims to be one? But this is what it means to just be David French. So you can read the whole thing, but I actually prefer the Technofog version of this, the Technofog website. I appreciate this critique. David French, get the vaccine or you're a bad Christian. Concerns about COVID vaccines are not spiritual problems. And he's right about this. This writer is absolutely right about this and cites the fact that historian John Fee was quoted by Religion News as saying, there's a long history of anti-science within American evangelicalism. It goes back to the Scopes trial and evolution in the 1920s. Like we're all a bunch of Christian scientists, right? Yeah, because I have a deep abiding connection to the Scopes trial, which happened decades before I was ever born. It goes all the way back there. I didn't make up my mind today when I woke up, hey, I don't think I'm going to get the COVID-19 vaccine quite yet, because I considered the Scopes monkey trial. That was a central part of my thinking. (laughs) These people, it's like they sit around, create caricatures and, and create straw men, and they just knock them down with their brilliance. And the rest of us are sitting there watching them saying... Do do you get out of the house much? Because all of your conclusions have nothing to do with reality. Most Christians I talk to are not refusing to get the COVID-19 vaccine for any spiritual reason or anything related to Darwinianism. What is he even talking about? French took these conclusions one step further, saying it's a spiritual problem. And this commentator says that is a disgusting and dangerous statement by French, a Christian with a huge platform. But what is it but a spiritual guilt trip? His message, get the vaccine or you're a bad Christian. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. How do these people, I, I, I don't know, how do these people think? Well, what is the thought process? I just need to make sure that I guilt people into getting the vaccine. Oh, yeah. Love your neighbor. Don't forget that. Love your neighbor. Speaking of the vaccines, let's go to Dr. Fauci because we haven't heard an incoherent message from Dr. Fauci lately. But Tom Elliott from Grabian News posted this clip. This is from Dr. Fauci on CNN. Asked, what's the science for denying vaccinated Americans the ability to return to traveling? And he can't explain. Listen to this. Cut one. You know from the Biden administration that they say it will make its decisions based on science. What's the science behind not saying it's safe for people who have been vaccinated, receive two doses to travel? You know, that's a very good question, John. And and the CDC is carefully heading in that direction. Uh, You know, when we when when Dr. Walensky made the announcement a day or two ago, about the fact that when you have a couple of people, two or three or more people in a family setting, both of whom are vaccinated, even if it's someone from another, a friend that doesn't have to be a member of the family, that was the first in a multi-step process that they are going to be rolling out. They're being careful, understandably. They want to get science. They want to get data. And then when you don't have the data and you don't have the actual evidence, then you've got to make a judgment call. 
And I think that's what you're going to be seeing in the next weeks. You're going to see little by little more and more guidelines getting people to be more and more flexible. The first installation of this is what can vaccinated people do in the home setting. Obviously, the next one is going to be what you're asking. What about travel? What about going out? What about getting a haircut? What about doing things like that? That's all imminently going to be coming out. It's absolutely extraordinary when you don't have the data and you don't have the actual evidence. You've got to make a judgment call. That's funny because my reaction would be if you don't have the data and you don't have the actual evidence, you have no business making a judgment call. Is that not the logical, rational response to having no data and no evidence that you can't make an accurate judgment call when you have no data or evidence? You're just winging it and you're telling people who have been vaccinated, you shouldn't travel. You, you still shouldn't get on airplanes. Well, why? Why? Why wouldn't you get on airplanes? People who have not been vaccinated have been getting on airplanes for months and more people need to get on airplanes so we can make sure that we have an airline industry when Fauci and his goons are done with this entire pandemic sham. I'm not saying the pandemic didn't exist, but I think the response to it has been a sham. These people are absolutely unbelievable. And listen to this cut. This is a flashback to July when the head of the CDC, Dr. Robert Redfield, said this about masks. Now, amazing. This is boring. I'm just warning you. This is going to be about a minute 20 of some really boring talking. But listen to it. Cut to. I think the data is just uh, continuing to mount to really get to the point, as we did in the editorial that we wrote about universal masking, the time is now. I think the data is clearly there that masking works, whether it's a face covering, whether it's a, a simple surgical mask, or whether it's uh, basically a, um, uh, obviously a mask that are used in the clinical setting. I think uh, I think we're at the stage that whether it's the MMWR that we had uh, that we had out about the stylus that wore the mask and we didn't see transmission, whether it's our household studies that we have now looking at the role of masking versus non-masking in different households. So I think that's really the point. Uh, I tried to say this uh, earlier this week. I was in North Carolina yesterday. Um, you know, I re- really do believe if the American public all embrace masking now um, and we really did it com- you know, rigorously, maybe more like uh, like the German citizens. Really, the Germans say everyone isolate. I think they got a lot of cooperation. You know, when we probably uh, isolated, we probably had less than half the American public uh, do it. I think if we could get everybody to wear a mask right now, I really do think over the next four, six, eight weeks, we could bring this epidemic under control. Oh, really? That was July of 2020. And there's the head of the CDC saying, if we could get everybody to wear a mask right now, I really do think over the next four, six, eight weeks, we could bring this epidemic under control. That would have put us at September of 2020. Was the epidemic under control in September of 2020? We had a lot of masks, a lot of mandates. We had a lot of lockdowns. We had a lot of people losing their jobs and their businesses and their livelihoods. And the epidemic continued. So the lockdowns didn't work and the masking doesn't work. And all you have to do is go back to sources like the CDC and like Dr. Fauci himself and look at the previous statements and see how they updated statements on their website about herd immunity. For example, they had one definition and then about eight months later, they completely changed the definition to include vaccination where they didn't even have it mentioned in the first version. 
These people are making it up as they go. They're making judgment calls and the data and the evidence are all over the map. At what point do the American people say enough? This thing spread because it spread. Coronaviruses are contagious and it spread. And the mask mandates didn't make any difference and neither did the shutdowns. But a whole lot of people got depressed and a whole lot of people lost their jobs and a whole lot of people got hurt. Was it worth it? I don't think so. It's amazing. It's, it's going to be even more amazing to see how years from now we reflect back on this period of time and we're constantly being told that, you know, it was a spiritual problem that you didn't go along with loving your neighbor the way Fauci told you to. Well, we'll see how science bears out. Thanks for being with us. We got to leave it there. We'll see you next time right here on Janet Meffer Today.